Good morning, church. Man, I tell you, there is just something uh, extraordinary about gathering up together um, and being reminded uh, through encountering uh, the truths and realities of God uh, as we hear one another declare them uh, that causes us to feel a little bit of stirring and uh, one might say reviving, right? I mean, when you come out of whatever you've walked out of, whether it was the drive here with the other humans in the car and you're like, that didn't go well, or whether it's a whole week, a whole month, a whole year, or a whole decade that's just felt uh, a little uh, difficult, there's something about entering into a space and, and having those words we just sang uh, declared over us, through us, in us, that causes uh, you to feel a bit like a breath of fresh air. You know, like, you're like, I just want to breathe that in, like a living hope. Like everything I have and need is sitting there. I wonder what it would have been like um, to be walking on planet Earth at the time that Jesus began to demonstrate and display the power he held and to begin to make tangible the plan he was unfolding for our salvation. Like, like it's hard to imagine quite what it would have been like in part because just the extraordinary things that happened and to have seen and watched them, that's one thing. But also because the people that were there were watching an unfolding story of God's salvation. They did not yet have the whole. We have the whole, so we know things of what God has done for us that can cause us to have a deeper, more profound gratitude and wonder and awe of the salvation of God toward us. But, but they didn't have some of that, yet they got to watch it unfold. You know, there's so many stories in the Gospels of Jesus walking on the planet and things unfolding that I think if I were there watching it, I, I don't quite know what I would have done with myself after the events uh, to, to, to go and just have my mind blown and want to tell everybody about it and, and, and not being able to sleep at night uh, just with the awe and wonder of what I've seen. I mean, I could pick a thousand stories. Uh, one comes to mind. Uh, it's uh, a story that unfolds in the book of Luke in chapter 8. Uh, it is a man named Yaris. And the book of Luke, chapter 8, the story begins with Yaris coming to Jesus. Uh, Jesus has a crowd following him now, so he already has a reputation. His reputation that goes before him is one that he holds power and that he can bring about uh, wellness where there is illness, that he can bring about freedom where there is bondage to things. This has already now been sort of whispered and confirmed. So Yaris, it says to us in Luke 8, uh, has a 12-year-old daughter, only child. And this 12-year-old daughter, who has clearly grown up all the way to 12, uh, full of life and wonder like any child is, has fallen desperately ill. So much so that the clarity that if they can't do something about this, she will probably die. So Yaris, who is uh, called a ruler, so he's a leader in whichever context he happens to find himself, he comes to Jesus by Jesus's reputation and says to him, hey, my daughter is very, very ill. Would you come with me 
so that you might lay your hands on her and, and heal her. This is the conversation that takes place. And Jesus says to Yaris, I'd be happy to do that. Let's go to your house. Okay, so there's the story that is unfolding. Uh, and if, if I were a part of the crowd that was kind of like hanging with Jesus and I overheard that conversation, I'd get pretty excited, I, w- I would say. Like, oh, here's another sick girl. And Jesus just said, I'll come, which means he's likely going to do something awesome. And I want to see that. So they're making their way to Yaris's house. And the Bible says in Luke 8, Uh, that a crowd presses into Jesus. So just stand there for a second in Yaris's world, right? You're trying to get where? Your house, why? Urgency, urgency, right? Every minute that passes by, the reality that this little girl might die is on your mind and you want to get to the house with Jesus before she dies because you need him to do something powerful before it's too late. And so you, and now this crowd's pressing in and I, I'm just trying to imagine I'm Yaris and I'm like, my house is this way, my house is, like just like get out of the way, you know? I mean, and Jesus is like slow. And it's actually in this moment that another story takes place that we often uh, uh, experience divorced from Yaris's anxiety because it in of itself is a beautiful story. While he's pressing through this crowd in Luke 8, a woman who has been suffering for 12 years, bleeding, and therefore isolated from society, reaches out to try and touch Jesus because she needs healing from this. And like Yaris believes that Jesus holds a power that has been displayed. In her case, her belief was about the messianic reality of Jesus, that he was the Messiah, because of the way she handles the situation touches the what we call wings of his cloak because in the Old Testament it says in your wings there will be a healing and so she's like if he's the Messiah all I gotta do is touch that part of his cloak and and I'll be healed and she does and she is healed which is crazy right it's so awesome and imagine if you were like uh, one of the crowd and you're like trying to stay as close to Jesus because you want to be at Yaris's place when he does this thing and then this woman kind of comes by you and it's like ah and then something happens and you're not quite sure what just went on but she goes and maybe you see her and you're like something something just changed and then what does Jesus do does he just keep moving on no 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 he stops and he's like, hold on, time out. Somebody just came and, 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 and power left me. And we love this story because they're like, oh, he's just so compassionate. And he's like there and he sees the woman, except who else is there? Yaris. Yaris. What, what do you, how do you think Yaris is feeling right about now? Like, hold on. I, I'm, I'm sure she's fine. Can we, can we go on? Like now Jesus stops and he's like, come here. And he has a whole conversation with her. And apparently he starts speaking because in a second it's going to say while he was speaking. So now he's like, ah, and he's speaking and she's here in this beautiful moment. And I'm Yaris, right? And I'm like, this is not going as planned because who's at my house? My daughter. What is she doing? Dying. And urgency is second by second now. The story says that while Jesus was speaking, some uh, of Yaris's household came and found, found Yaris and said, 
uh, ruler, no need to bother the rabbi anymore because your daughter is dead. I guess what a, what a heavy moment. We, see how I said we divorced those two stories, but they are simultaneous. Jesus overcoming a 12-year disease of bondage and pain, but the cost being a 12-year-old girl full of life coming to the end of hers. And Yaris, as he's talking with these folks, Jesus overhears the conversation, it says. And he turns and says, oh, don't worry. <laughs> she's not dead. She's sleeping, which is fascinating to me because <laughs> she wasn't sleeping. She was dead. So you're like, did Jesus lie? No, Jesus is constantly displaying that our paradigm over what we think is powerful and final is like a nothing to him. What is to us the finality of death is to him simply someone resting. <laughs> like he does not hold limitation. And so what he's saying to Yaris is, I, I mean, I understand what you are experiencing right now. And it is real as far as uh, a human experiences the power of death. But death to me is the same as a human sleeping that I walk over and wake up. So he's like, I'm, I'm on my way to your house. That's not over yet. Because in our world and mind as humans, we look to the power of God and we say, it is indeed powerful, but they are forces and things that when he encounters those, they are too powerful. So he can heal the sick, but once death comes, that chance is lost. And Jesus is like, you don't understand. I hold power not only of sickness, but of death. So he goes to Yoris' house and he walks in like it's nothing. And he's like, hey, young lady, wake on up. And she does. And they're like, boom. And part of why we know that they knew that she wasn't sleeping is afterwards there is this commotion. And Jesus says, listen, for now, don't go tell anyone about this. And you might say, what is that about? A, a story for another time. It's not like Jesus was trying to keep his messianic reality a secret. He was strategically unfolding a reality and a story. The point is that that displays to us that they knew exactly what they just saw happen. You with me so far? So Jesus, if you were with him in this unfolding reality, when he on this planet in things that feel overwhelming to us, but are still temporal in their nature, our illnesses, our struggles, our sufferings, our, our hassles, and, and even our death on this planet, when Jesus encounters those spaces and he reverses them, we are stuck, we are dying, we are dead, we are, we are in shame. Jesus shows up, does something, and everything changes. When that happens, what is our response? Like just put yourself there for a second. I'm not saying like, what's your response to the story? No, you're actually there and you actually see it happen. How does that night go over dinner? Like, I mean, what are you talking about? How was your day? How was a day? Well, what happened? I don't know. I was with Jesus. He did some stuff. It was fun. I mean, it's neat. Someone was healed. That was great. There was a dead girl. She's alive. I mean... Wow, it's, it's cool. Is that how that conversation goes? No, you see, you're sitting here like me going, are you out of your mind? Like you don't sleep that night. Like you, you, and the next morning when you wake up, you, you try to pinch yourself and go, there's no way I saw what I saw yesterday. But then you talk to others who were there and they're like, no, 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 that's what went down. And you're like, oh my God. 
how, at what point in your life, down your life journey, you're now 97, sitting around with the grandchildren and you hardly remember anything anymore, and yet this you cannot forget. Would you still talk about it then? Of course you do. Who wouldn't when someone walks in and so profoundly shapes something like that? Jesus did this often while he was on the planet, encountering humans in their spaces of, of stuckness, desperation, illness, uh, even uh, shame and fear. In fact, often shame and fear as well. And what Jesus began to do while he was on the planet, encountering us in our planet space. So the things that are physical or emotional or mental or or spiritual as it relates to this space, as he would encounter those, he started saying things along the way that started cluing us in to the fact that although those things are profound by very nature of what he's doing, that they were not the real power of what he was up to, that his salvation, his redemption of us that that was the shadow, the whisper, the temporal reality of what he was actually doing. We ca catch glimpses of this in certain stories where he will say something that when you read it quickly, you miss it. But if you pay some attention, you're like, that is odd. On multiple occasions, uh, he would either in an interaction with someone that had a physical reality they were hoping he would fix or someone that found themselves in a shameful place, he would, he would say these words, your, your sins are forgiven. The story I love the most in this, because it's the one that makes the least sense to me, is the story of the paraplegic in Mark chapter 2, where this guy is a paraplegic and uh, these friends lower him through a roof so he can encounter Jesus, right? And what are they hoping Jesus will do for him? make him move, right? I mean, it's not confusing. Is anyone here going, I don't think so. I think he just wanted his sins forgiven. Like, no, he wanted to move. But when he's lowered down, the Bible literally says Jesus saw their faith and said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And I've said this before when I've shared this story. I, I can't wait to meet the dude in, in heaven. I mean, I've got a list and he's on it. I'm like, I'm going to go find him. It might take me 10,000 years, but I got time. I'm going to go find him. And when I find him, I want to say to him, this is my question, waiting for him. Okay, I got to know. I got to know, right? When Jesus said that, like you didn't care after that if you ever moved again, did you? Like, I'm sure he's going to say, yes, I didn't care. What he said to me in those words, you will never understand, Renaud, because it was what was going on inside of me. And he knew what he needed to do. And in that moment, I knew him to be a savior far beyond simply making me move again. I can't wait to bump into this guy. But Jesus did this often. And he bothered even in those spaces to make sure we don't miss the profound nature of what it means that he would actually forgive sins and in so doing, remove from us the consequences of sin. And that is death. That it wasn't actually the forgiveness of the sins that is profound as much as what that then affects for us. That in order for us not to miss how profound that was, he would add these little characters into the story. I mean, they're real people uh, that he was putting in there. But he, so in every case that he says that, your sins are forgiven. There's always some Pharisee there going, whoa, time out. Who is this dude that he can forgive sins? See, they do, the story, that happens because what God wants us to note, because it's not our cultural context, 
is that the people that knew what it meant that you were God versus just a powerful prophet was your power to forgive sins, not your power to heal the sick. Prophets had healed, prophets had healed the sick. Others had seen the dead uh, raised at different points throughout uh, Old Testament history. But to forgive sins belonged to one and one alone. And that was the creator and sustainer of the universe. So for Jesus to say, I can heal your predicament, but what I'm going to do is forgive your sins. That was something. And for us, it seems the first is the big one. The second is the easy one. For the Pharisees, they knew the difference. So what Jesus is saying is, as you notice the profound nature of the power I display in solving your circumstantial, your physical, your, your immediate needs, and you would celebrate that the rest of your life if it included the healing of a sickness or the raising of the dead, that in fact is a shadow of what you should be celebrating because what I've really done is something profoundly bigger than that. Part of how he unpacks that is not only in the New Testament spaces, but the story is told throughout the Old Testament as well. From the beginning of the human story, God begins to unfold a clarity for us about what he is up to in his redemptive work that if fully grasped should cause us to spend the rest of our existence in awe of what he has done. Because he demonstrates after Adam and Eve choose on their own fruition to pursue their own divinity, believing the lie of Satan, that if they eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they will know what God knows and be like him, won't need him. They chose that. And instead of entering into their story, divinity coming in and knowledge beyond God, what came into our human story was what God said would, the virus sin and that virus of sin that is injustice personified uh, begins to be a part of our human story to such an extent that that virus produces its fruit in every way and its fruit is always identical and the same. It is the only bent of sin, this virus, and that is death. Temporal death, permanent death, eternal death, slow death, fast death, long death, sad death, anything as long as the word death is at the end of it. And so we see by Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, the Bible starts with Genesis chapter 1. We're six chapters into a 66 book story and we're six chapters in and here's what we hear. Every thought and intent of mankind was evil. The entirety of mankind. Yikes. And so the Bible says God moves toward this deadly thing called sin, this injustice, this ugliness, this thing that produces death. He moves toward it as someone who is just would do. He moves toward it to end it, to destroy it, to set it right. We experience that sometimes shockingly because God floods the earth, for example. And like, you just were mad and you wiped out the human race. Like, no, uh, we have a God who is just. And when he encounters injustice, a being that is just, you would hope, would not tolerate injustice and let it rain because he's trying to be nice. Injustice produces what? You're like, I, I, I don't know. Death! Death! 
death, 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 and death. And if you know that injustice, sin, evil produces death, and we knew we had a God, would we not want that God to stand uh, before injustice and bring his power to bear on it, to set it as nothing, to eliminate it? Anybody here want God not to eliminate injustice? (laughs) No. But the problem is injustice lives where? In us. And so when he comes after injustice, we are the recipients of an eternal death. The wrath of God affects justice and we are in the path of that wrath because we embody injustice. Now you might be saying, no, this is like revive us. I'm not feeling revived. This is terrible. Wait, wait, watch. Because God is just, we need salvation. Because without salvation, we are the recipients of his justice. And that will be our demise. But because God is gracious, he provides salvation. Not by ignoring his justice and letting us live despite being the embodiment of sin, but to actually do something profoundly different, and that is to rescue us even while we are sin. And he shows this in the Old Testament through the people that are these humans through Noah's story to preserve the human race despite the fact that sin was still there. And then through the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 and the whole thing until they're totally enslaved by another nation that he rescues them from, not because of anything they deserve, but because he is good and right and just. And when he rescues them, he rescues them with power. And God shows us two things. You need salvation because I am just. You will have salvation because I am gracious. I will provide it for you. And when I choose to save, it will be effective because I'm that powerful. When he wanted to rescue his people from Pharaoh, do you think there was any chance God was like, gosh, I hope he does it? I mean, I'll I'll try. I'll, I'll I'll do my best. But you know, Pharaoh's Pharaoh. You know what I'm saying? And so after a couple plagues, I don't know, if he, if he doesn't do it, I'm at some point going to run out and be like, okay, sorry guys, I tried. See, there's no version in what God reveals in scripture that he says, when I want to save, produce salvation for someone or for a people group, that I can unless I encounter something that's that powerful, death, uh, a leader, whatever. There is no such thing. He will always produce effectively the salvation of those he is saving because he is that powerful. And so the picture that God produces in scripture through the Old and New Testament is this, that our predicament as human beings born from human beings and therefore transferred to us as human beings, the virus sin, our predicament is a terrible, terrible one. That death is not found in its greatest form in the temporal ending of our life on this planet, though that one feels very big. 
It's actually the ongoing eternality of death that is the most terrible to imagine, so terrible, in fact, that we cannot fathom it. So we have words that God has put to it, words that we use like hell or eternal damnation or death. And we actually, even as a culture, because those words feel so profoundly terrible and uncompassionate, we try to eliminate them from God's story. No God who is good would ever allow such a thing. That must have been crazy. But God's like, no, no, you don't understand. That is just the natural, unfortunate consequence of the profound nature of sin that causes death. And it is our end, but for God's salvation. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that Zach so kindly brought to our table, you heard it in there, didn't you? A few verses that said, gosh, here's who you all once were. And it's summarized this way. You were by nature children of wrath because you were consumed by sin. And then verse four, but God, because of his great love and mercy that he has toward us, made us alive in Christ Jesus even while we were dead in our transgressions. You see, what God is displaying there is this, that his salvation does not come because we come awake and move from our dead position to our begging God position. You were once dead in your transgressions, and as soon as you woke up, realized your desperation for me, came running to me and said, please, God, save me. I realized now I'm dead. I moved on your behalf. No, no, no such thing. It says, while you were still right there, I came and saved you. It's an incredible thing. And as God unpacks all of this, it is no wonder as we begin to shift our clarity from the profound nature of the temporal power he displays on this planet in our immediate circumstances during his time on the planet to this very huge, giant realization that actually the real thing that he gifts us with is the eternal salvation of our souls making us alive when we were dead and by doing that setting us into a position of an inheritance that is eternal unfading undefiled and kept for us that there becomes a thing we need to begin to grasp it's no wonder that when Jesus is telling the story in Luke chapter 5 uh, about what it means that somebody is lost and needs to be found. And he's talking about a shepherd leaving 99 sheep to go find the one. And he's talking about uh, a person sweeping to find a coin that's missing to kind of demonstrate that he is here to find every single human that he is going to come and save. And he says this at the end of both those parables. When just one one human being moves from death into life. Do you know what the angels in heaven do? It's in scripture. It says it. He, Jesus says. Here's how it goes down. In that moment of transition, the angels in heaven have a moment. They have a moment. You go, what, what, what's the moment? I don't know. You know humans. When you have a moment, you're like, oh, it's a moment. They stop. They pay attention. They celebrate. They stand in awe. In awe of what? In awe of whom? In awe of a life moving from death to life. In awe of the one who made it so. 
to stand and say something just happened that shouldn't have happened. Something just happened that couldn't have happened. Something just happened that doesn't make sense. And it happened because we have a God who is both powerful and gracious and remains just and yet finds the way to satisfy justice in his death and satisfy grace in his resurrection. And we are the recipients of this incredible wonder. David in Psalm 51 is writing, it is a beautiful psalm because it is a psalm that is in response to a terrible thing that occurred in his life that he chose and affected. Something that perhaps if we were in our spaces would say, does this disqualify me from the God who saves, right? I mean, David had made some terrible choices. And so he's coming to God in this place of shame and fear and terrible choices, knowing that full well he chose them all the way. And there is that fear, I'm sure, even in him, like, is this it? Like, do, 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 I, do, do I qualify to be saved? And so he reaches out and he's like, God, have mercy on me. Create a clean heart in me when the darkness of my heart is so profoundly on display. And then he says, do not remove your spirit from me. It's an Old Testament thing for another time. He doesn't remove his spirit from us, but watch this. Then he says this, this is it. And restore to me the joy of your salvation. What is David saying? Would you remind me, show me that no matter what I have or have not done, no matter where I am at in my journey, that the fact that you've saved me is not because of what I've done or am doing or will do or won't do. It is because you are a merciful king. So would you restore back to me the joy that you have saved me? And that even as I stand in this dark place, things I have chosen and affected for myself, that yet you remain mercy. Restore to me that joy, David says. There is a, a story in Luke chapter 7 of a woman. Uh, there's actually two stories in Scripture of a woman coming to Jesus and, and pouring upon his feet and head uh, the anointing oil or perfumes, expensive stuff. Uh, one of them happens in Bethany later on. This story is not that one. Happens twice, actually. Two different women. This story is a woman that happens as Jesus is sitting in the home of a Pharisee, a religious leader. And uh, while they're sitting chatting, he's reclined at the table and this woman comes through the doors. Uh, I, I wish I had time to explain to you how awkward this <laughs> little situation would have been in this cultural context, but no time for that because uh, that's not what's important today. What's important today is that this woman comes, uh, comes through the doors and, and makes a beeline straight to Jesus. And, and it, we find out that she had actually gone and bought uh, this uh, bottle of perfume of, of oil because she wanted to bring it to Jesus. And again, wish I could go into what that meant for her and, and income and provision. But, but she comes bursting through the doors and she gets at his feet and she just begins to weep. She just begins to weep and weep and weep. 
And in her weeping, her tears fall to the feet of Jesus and begin to wet his feet. And she takes her hair down and she starts wiping his feet with her hair. They are not feet like ours. They are dirty and grimy and muddy feet because they walked everywhere in sandals. And so as the tears mix with the mud and the feet and she's wiping her hair. And in that culture, the humiliation of letting your hair down and the humiliation of using your hair to do something like this. I can't begin to describe to you what all that was. And as she does this, she pulls the perfume out and she just begins to pour it on him and she's weeping. And and the Bible says that the Pharisees watching all this go down, he's waiting. The reason he hasn't done anything is because he's waiting for the rabbi to notice how terrible this is and to do something. And so it says his thought was, if this was actually a prophet, Jesus would know who was touching his feet. This is a terrible sinner. So she had reputation in the town. And Jesus knows what the Pharisee is thinking. He doesn't have to say it, he just has to think it. And Jesus says, Simon, can I tell you a story? While this woman's like just doing this. He's like, and he tells the story of one who has been forgiven much and the gratitude that is born from that and one who has been forgiven little and the lack of gratitude that's born from that. And then he speaks to this woman and he says, what you're watching happen here is someone who has come to a clarity of what is in them and who is by faith saying, could you be the one perhaps that could make this right? Because I can't live with it anymore. And so he says to the woman, you believed rightly of who I am. Your faith is so evident. You came to the right feet. Your sins are forgiven. There is no healing that could be greater than that for the human person. No death temporarily on this planet that we could be saved from as profound as the creator and sustainer of the universe saying, you are right to trust me for something no one else could do. I forgive you. You are free, not just now, but forever. This last week here at Mosaic, we've had the incredible opportunity to watch VBS unfold, uh, where hundreds of children were in this sanctuary and in this building hearing the gospel. And we don't even know how many of them have come to know Jesus yet. The small group leaders are still kind of letting us know the stories. Or how many of them did not profess faith in this room, but a seed was planted. And at some point in their story, when they think back of where Jesus encountered them the first time, VBS will be part of that story. I don't know even yet. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's so fun to just imagine how many. Maybe three, maybe 30, maybe 300. I have no idea. But if one, one encountered Jesus then the stirring in us ought to be overwhelming. And just a few weeks before VBS, we had this little thing called Student Ministry Summer Camp. We happened to know what happened there because it was a few weeks ago. And it turns out that over 20 high school students for the very first time in their lives gave their lives to Jesus and said, oh my gosh, you are my savior. Oh, wait, wait. I'm not even getting, no, I'm not even starting yet. Hold your applause because you're going to want them in just a few minutes. And as we talked about it, even this last week of these students that came, I noticed even in my own heart, 
I noticed how these declarations of these students coming to know Jesus felt more ordinary to me than they ought. Like I was like, that's, that's awesome. I wasn't like, like, oh, that's stupid. I was like, oh, that's awesome. But that's all I had. Like, oh, it's, that's, that's wonderful. And I thought about Jairus. And if I'd watched his daughter raised from the dead and I thought to myself, would I have dinner that night and say, oh, that's wonderful. This is so wonderful. Someone was raised from the dead. No, no, I, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. So why is it? Why is it that dozens of people in our midst have transitioned from eternal death to eternal life? Everything has changed for them and everything will now begin to profoundly change as their journey on this planet continues. And the best I've got is, ah, that's, that's great news. I ought to not sleep at night. And so I started asking the student leaders, tell me the stories of how this unfolded. And they started telling me and I was like, oh, <laughs> that's crazy. That's amazing because there were the stories of Jesus when he encounters humans and the reaction and experience of those humans. And I thought, you know, if we're going to be a people that begin to bend our minds back to a place where we restore or have restored to us the joy of our salvation. We ought to have a bit of a new reminder of how profound it is that someone has come to know Jesus so that we would be reminded of how profound it is that he bothered to let us come to know him. So I thought I'd let you hear from those leaders because I couldn't do it justice to tell you what I heard from them and what they watched happen in these students. And I pray, like me, that you would be stirred to be reminded of what it is that our God still today bothers to show up and make a human who was dead alive and change a human's destiny from hell to life and to shape a human's story on this planet from chasing after the wind to chasing after Jesus. Take a look at this. This could be horrible or this could be the greatest thing ever. Like God is just like, like wrecking kids, it was incredible. These students just experienced the freedom of Christ. These students just experienced the gift of salvation. Guys, I got the privilege of going to camp this year and it was insane. I got to take 21 guys and there was a huge mix of different types of personalities and groups, but um, it was the most incredible week of camp of my life. And I've been going to camp for a long time um, with Mosaic for like eight years. And this year, God was moving. God did some insane stuff. Uh, by day two, I had maybe a kid who was the furthest from the Lord. It was like midnight and God was just pulling on his heart and he just began to confess everything that's been going on in his life, just bawling his eyes out and we're all crying with him and just getting to pray for him and he's just asking the Lord into his life. And um, the Holy Spirit just moved in this kid. And when he opened his eyes after praying, his entire vocabulary changed, his demeanor changed, and he literally began to beg his other friends. He started to beg them to confess and to make Jesus their Lord too. Like, and this is a kid who like, didn't talk about God, didn't come for God, and he was like 
preaching to them, like literally speaking scripture that I don't even know if how he even knew it, right? It was insane. And throughout the week, God just like began to just knock on all these kids' doors, like literally just like pulling their hearts and drawing them all to him. And just one by one, like there was a group of nine of those guys who all came to camp just to play games and volleyball and spike ball. But like God literally just like drawled them all in. It was insane to watch. And uh, by the end of camp, uh, Caleb was asking us to kind of like ask the Lord what lies we're believing, right? And we're all praying what lies we're believing about ourselves, about God. And God was putting on my heart that like I'm, I believe that maybe I'm the one that's doing the saving, right? It's like through my mighty works and my ability to lead or my leadership that like these guys are coming to the Lord and God was kind of sharing with me, like Chip, it has nothing to do with you. It's, it's me, I'm using you. And it was like this really humbling moment. But I was like so thankful that it wasn't on me. Like I remember like literally like crying, like thinking like, thank you God that it's not on me because there's way too many kids here for me to like be able to handle them all. But like God is just like, like wrecking kids, it was incredible. So, but at the last like a uh, small group time, we're all hanging out, we're laying down, looking at fireflies and the dark stars, and everyone's like crying and repenting and coming to the Lord. And one of my guys who was kind of uh, a little shyer and has a, had a harder time that week, ended up walking off during the middle of small group time. And I remember thinking, wow, like, I'm just not able to help this kid. Like I just, I'm not, the guy he needs right now. And uh, we end up going back to our cabin to kind of wash up, go to bed. And uh, about an hour goes by and the student comes running in the cabin, just completely changed, smiling, laughing, tears on his face. And the whole camp, he hasn't been anything like that. And he's like, Chip, come outside, come outside. And he began to tell me, he's like, Chip, while you guys were praying and doing all this crazy stuff, I was so mad. And I walked away to go be alone for a minute. And I sat on the hill and just, there was another leader from camp there and God just put on my heart to confess to them. So I started to confess things I've never confessed to anyone before. And I just began to feel like God loved me even though he, he saw how broken I was and he still loved me. I've never felt that freedom before. And he's like, I want God to be my God. I want to, to serve God with my whole life. I want him to be my Lord and Savior. And he's like, I confess that Jesus is Lord. Like, he's my God. And it was like this crazy moment and God is like speaking to me like, see Chip, like, I don't need you. Like, yeah, he walked away from you and he came to the Lord. Like, I can use anybody. It was just like this insane moment like where God is working at camp and it was just like an Acts Church moment where like people are coming to the Lord, entire households are coming to the Lord. And it's just because God is drawing them to himself and that uh, help, that is like how I could best explain camp 2022 is that God was there. He was drawing kids to himself hearts were being broken and made whole again through him and it was just absolutely beautiful yeah so uh camp 2022 man there there were so many stories from that week but uh the one that we were all a part of that just comes to my mind most honestly is uh the night that we had just gotten done with worship obi's coming up to preach and uh he's about 15 minutes into his sermon and all of a sudden uh one of our uh girls from our ministry she jumps up runs out of the room and uh two two girls follow after and then two small group leaders uh jump up and they go out different doors and i'm just thinking you know with youth ministry it's like okay i 
this could be horrible or this could be the greatest thing ever. So I think, okay, let me go outside and I'll, I'll see what's going on. And so I walk out one of the doors and as I'm walking out, uh, I see these two sitting on a golf cart and, uh, and everything going on outside. Yeah, yeah, so like Jason, you come out and Brady and I are talking and you're like, like beelining it for this group. And Brady and I are like, no, no, come here. Come here, just come here because a little bit had already happened before you came out. So she comes running out and of course Brittany and I are talking and we're like, what's happening? Because we kind of have like the same thought. Something is, it could be good or it could be bad. So we're watching her and she's coming out and she's just screaming, I did it, I did it, I did it. And then her group comes running out after her <laughs> and she's like, I feel so free. It's just such a great moment, but you're still kind of like, what's going on <laughs> and so she's like I just want to tell everybody I just want to tell everybody and her groups around her and they're like well tell us first and then she says I love Jesus he's changed me I feel so good and that was kind of when Jason comes running out so we didn't want him to like beeline it for over <laughs> yeah, there yeah. to kind of ask her what was going on so it was super cool yeah, yeah. and at that point we were kind of just enjoying this moment, this visual like representation of life going from death to life transformation. And uh, we're just sitting back watching and like starting to like tears and yeah. you know, just experiencing this moment, uh, this beautiful, beautiful moment. And um, it was a little bit later, like there's this celebration, mm -hmm. like all her girls are out, there's cheering, I'm sure. Obi, who was preaching, could hear us. We were, it was probably loud, um, but just being able to watch this and then have the celebration of life transformation, yeah. like uh, it was beautiful. And at the same time, Chip was outside with one of his guys and we come to find out that this um, boy accepted Christ as well. So two yeah. lives were changed in that moment, both very different, one very visual and um, spoken out loud and one very intimate and one-on-one. -on -one. And that was just a very special moment and that God knows the intimacies of our hearts and those kids' hearts and worked uniquely to them to show them the gospel and himself and the reality of, of transformation. And a little bit later, uh, yeah. Jason got to share with her that that a, a, a student was also coming to Christ at that time. And the first words out of her mouth was, I have a brother yeah. now. And it so was good. just so, so good. So, good. so amazing. Yeah. yeah. Really yeah. cool yeah. moment. As I think back on the week of camp, there was one day in particular that meant so much to me. We were in our evening session listening to the sermon um, when a bunch of our students got up and left the room really quickly. And I remember my initial thoughts were, what is happening? This is crazy. All these students are running and I don't know what to do. And about 10 minutes later, these, sa these same students returned. And as I looked on their faces, all I could see were just tears and tears and unexplainable joy. And at the end of the sermon, one of our leaders got up and said, some of you may be confused at what just happened. Um, some of you may have seen these students leave the room. But what just took place is that these students encountered Jesus for the first time. These students just experienced the freedom of Christ. These students just experienced the gift of salvation. I remember just sitting there in awe of what God had just done, in awe of the work that just took place in this room and in the lives of our students. These students were experiencing freedom like no other. These students were experiencing going from death to life. And we took some time at the end of the sermon to respond in worship. 
And I just remember watching these students fall on their knees and just praising the Lord, thanking Him for His freedom, thanking Him for His salvation, thanking Him for choosing them to be His children. And it was a moment that forever changed my life and meant so much. You know, I think as we continue to journey into this summer, asking the Lord to stir in us what is necessary for us to feel a reviving, you know, to feel a breath of fresh air from Him in uh, a world and a time where things have felt heavy for a long time. And those of you walking into this room, I don't know what you walk in with today. Maybe you walk in here with a, a lot of heavy, a lot of hard, a lot of struggle. Or maybe you walk in here right now with a lightness and things are going very well. We are so profoundly affected by the realities of our circumstances, aren't we? And I get why. It's not like an evil thing. It's a, it's a real thing. It happens. But the beauty of what David was asking for, God, would you restore to me in, in each day the joy of your salvation is this clarity that says that when we as humans who know Jesus uh, take the time to remind ourselves and be reminded and engage in the joy of what this profound thing is that God has done to save us, that it is in of itself a part of that which transcends us and that which revives us in a world that often feels like it's not. So if you are here and you know Jesus, as you hear this moment happen, and we've got this brief moment like camp happened and there's something to attach to that we're like, look, they came to know Jesus and it was so awesome. Every day around planet Earth, someone is coming to know Jesus. Every day, every day. And we don't have to see it and know it to just stand in the dailiness that today God has gone out to find his sheep, his people, and to save them. And today, one or 10 or 100 or 1,000 have encountered Jesus. And every day that I profoundly remember that that's happening today, I am reminded to be stirred to awe of the fact that he found me, that he saved me, that he is saving me now, meaning that he is holding my salvation for me even when I, like David, will do things that should disqualify me and that he will keep it for me safe until it is revealed on the last day. You say, how are you making that up or no? No, no, I'm not. No, the Spirit of God told Peter to write it down so that I wouldn't have to make it up, so you wouldn't have to doubt it and nor would I. Listen, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's Power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who is guarding our faith so that our salvation will be secure? God is. I can't even fail him 
by failing in my faith. Because though it is my faith that keeps salvation, he keeps my faith. It is unfading, it is unperishable, and it is being held for me. I wait to see my salvation. And that is my joy. If you are here and you don't know Jesus, if you wonder sometimes while we get all excited about Jesus and you're like, eh, it's a little weird. Or you look and you say, I don't know, there's a fairy tale uh, Easter bunny person in the sky that's doing, I get it, I get it. It's, but I'll tell you, man, when you encounter Jesus and you begin to see what he is doing in your life, you will run out of rooms like those kids and go, I did it. He did it. He loves me and I love him and I need to tell someone and your friends will say, tell us first. Gosh, God, would you restore to us the joy of your salvation toward us so that we like heaven would sing and dance with joy to what you have done. So now here in this place, if not tomorrow, at least in this moment, but I pray tomorrow and onward as well, it is our chance to stand and dance, is it not? To step for a second out of the heaviness of this world and to stand in the joy of our salvation and to declare together with our voices with heaven, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving someone today. Thank you for saving us. So I'm going to pray briefly. And while I pray, I pray you would stand to your feet, not even waiting for the amen, preparing your hearts to allow this team to lead us into a place where we can shout with heaven today. A gratitude for those students, a gratitude for the kids at VBS we have not even heard yet about, a gratitude for what he's done for us, and a gratitude for whatever human in some other country as we speak is encountering Jesus right now and being profoundly changed from death to life. May we stand and declare the joy of his salvation toward us and our salvation because of him. Amen. Amen. God, thank you for all that you've done. As we stand now to declare and shout, may from our hearts and our voices come what came out of the heart of that woman when she wept over your feet, a gratitude for you being Messiah and Savior, one who came, one who lived, one who died, one who rose from the dead, and one who gave us life, keeps it for us and guarantees it as our end when we die. We love you. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Amen. We worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who is.